and amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll do two short passages here, uh, one from Hebrews and the other from Ephesians. This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews 13. Remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And from Ephesians 4, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Let's pray. God and Father, we thank you for the unchanging nature of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We thank you for the faith delivered to us by your apostles and prophets and handed down to us by faithful saints through the centuries. Guide us to heed your word, to listen to the faithful before us who preached and taught your word, and to be firmly planted in the gospel, lest we be carried about by the spirit of this age and not the spirit of Christ. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So I'll start this morning um, with a little test. That phrase always terrified me in high school, so I thought I'd start there. Um, I'll give you a minute to think about this, and I will give you a few seconds because I want you to really consider it. But I'd like each one of you to think how you would summarize the Christian faith, how you would condense it down to its core. If someone asked you, what do Christians actually believe, how would you do that? And you have three or four sentences, that's all you got. So you have to cram the faith once for all delivered to the saints into equivalent of a couple of tweets. So what would you say? See what's coming to your mind. It's a lot of possibilities. Maybe you went through something very simple. Maybe it popped into your head, Jesus saves sinners. Or you went to a verse that you thought would would be quick and encapsulate it like a John 3.16. Maybe you thought of the incarnation and Jesus' death and resurrection. I should tell them about that. Maybe you started to think about sin and the state of man, and maybe you just got overwhelmed and thought, well, if I start at Genesis, there's all kinds of things I need to go through. Um, Where do I go with that? I'm sure you all thought of something, and I'm sure to some degree you thought it wasn't everything it should have been. It's hard to prioritize. You all thought of true and good things, but being concise there is a challenge. And yet the question I asked was very simple. So let's rephrase it a different way. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father, one God, the Father. Hey, that's what we believe, right? Now, did your mind go there? If you cheated and looked at the notes, and it did, that's, all, that's fantastic. <laughs> but if it didn't, my goal this morning is twofold. I would like to help new members of the congregation understand the portion of our liturgy where we recite the creed. And I use that phrase in particular, the Nicene Creed, That's what we're using right now, and that's what we spend most of the church calendar reciting. We'll use the Apostles' Creed and Catechism questions too, but the Nicene is a very full expression of the Christian faith. And you may come from a background, just like me, um, that does not necessarily use this old tradition and could be wondering why exactly it's there, what kind of authority it has, you know, why not just use a Bible verse? Is it necessary? Where did it come from in the first place? All those types of things. The second goal 
would be to help all of us, new and experienced, better appreciate the value of this part of the liturgy, the value of the creed to provide you with a biblical understanding of what it says, of what the gospel is. The intent here is that you can not only understand why we do it and what it says, but can truly use it as a way to firm yourself in the faith, in the scriptures and in the gospel and be established by grace. It is a spiritual weapon given to us that we might defend and confess and proclaim. So in a nutshell, all we're going to be talking about this morning is the gospel, what we believe. And I want this part of the liturgy as with prayer, confession, and preaching and communion to be a blessing that goes beyond the short time it takes us to recite it each Sunday. So to start here, let's talk about why we do it in the first place, the necessity of a creed. Those two texts that I read this morning from Hebrews and Ephesians point Christians to their leaders in the broader church as an example of faithful doctrine and conduct. And the basis for that um, in those passages is that Jesus is the greater altar, the greater sacrifice, is firm, secure, and unchanging. The truth we are to secure ourselves in is in Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The more we do this, the more we protect ourselves from being blown about, as those passages mention. Each one of them had a parallel phrase. The Hebrew passage stated, do not be carried away with various and strange doctrines. The Ephesians passage said that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Both of them had the same fear, and both of them were were describing the same level of protection. Because the faith is timeless, it does not change. And one of the great advantages we have as Christians is that we don't have to only rely on the leaders of our age alone. We always like to reinvent the wheel. Evangelicals are very good at this. Faithful men throughout church history will, by definition, give us the faith. As Paul said in Ephesians, they are there to equip us. They're there to bring us to unity. They're there to protect us from lousy teaching and point us to Christ as our head and our sacrifice. And while they are never perfect when they do this, men who are long gone have the luxury of being men who we can, more than those who are even alive today, see the end of their conduct. We can see if their conduct and teaching was faithful and fruitful. So both Hebrews and Ephesians mention the importance of doctrine, right? They they both use that word of right teaching, of not being carried about and being firm in what we believe. And these verses, I would say, presuppose and require a creed. They require that you know the correct doctrine and you can recognize the false. Creed simply comes from the Latin credo. It means I believe, same as credo baptism, all right, believer's baptism. It's a word we use frequently in lots of contexts. And it's essentially, it's a statement of faith. That's what it is. It's common for American Christians in particular to have a couple of objections to the use of creeds. And so both of these objections are often centered around a very good intention. So I want, I want to honor them by bringing up these objections because and, and it's a desire to protect the unique place of Scripture in our lives and to keep unity with other believers. So the first objection you usually hear when a creed comes up is, well, we don't use creeds, just the Bible. No, no creed but Christ. And the problem with that, as many of you know, is both those two statements are creeds, unfortunately. So I don't believe in a creed is a creed. Um, the issue is not whether you will have a creed, but which one it's going to be. The minute, you, the minute someone asks you what the faith says, unless you plan on starting at Genesis 1 and reciting all the way to the end of Revelation, out from your mouth is going to come a creed. It's just which one, whether it's one you thought up or whether someone else thought it up. The fear in this instance is that somehow scripture is being clouded over in a man-made construct. This creed will take precedence over the word and will miss something. And that's a legitimate concern. The second objection comes from a dislike of doctrine. Um, Doctrine divides and creates conflict, so let's avoid being too specific about what we believe so we don't rock the boat. We want to keep unity, right? 
The problem here is that somebody has to define the basis of unity. Unified in what? And as soon as you start to answer that question, out's going to come a creed. I believe we are all unified in Jesus. That's a creed. And it's going to lead to other questions, like who is this Jesus, and how can we be united to him? So I want you to keep these two objections in mind, because I believe our use of the creed in our church does exactly the opposite of those two objections. It keeps us much closer to God's word, and it allows us to better maintain a faithful unity with other believers, regardless of their denominational background. So if I can prove that to you, we'll have done our job here. So a short history of where this creed came from. The creed we're talking about is the Nicene Creed, and if you look on our church documents, even on our web, our web page, um, you'll see it's labeled with the date 381 AD, right? That date is for the, what's called the Council of Constantinople. It's generally credited with the text that we use today minus a few modifications. That council was building off of a text that was originally put in place at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. That's where the creed gets its name, the Nicene. That Council of Nicaea was often called the first ecumenical council, though it was mostly bishops from the east side of Christianity that went to it. Um, but it was a large gathering, and the goal of that council was very simple. They were dealing with what was called the Arian heresy. That was a particular doctrine that many parts of the church had given way to, and that denied the full deity of Jesus Christ. It was a non-Trinitarian belief system that placed Jesus as kind of a subordinate creation. Maybe the first creation, very important, very strong, but not quite God, almost God, getting there. That's a big deal. Because if Jesus is not God, we have a big problem with our salvation and the atoning work of the cross. How Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are connected and who they are and what they did is the whole of the Christian faith. Doctrine here was critical because if you get this foundation wrong, you're going to place legions of people on a path to perdition. And Paul wanted, warned us to stay firm, not to be blown about, because when you're subject to the wind, you don't control where you land. Ultimately, this is a pastoral issue. This was not a bunch of academics coming together for a conference. That's how sometimes we look at these things. This was a bunch of pastors coming together to kill wolves because they wanted to protect their people. That's where this creed comes from. And so a large portion of the creed, a large portion of the church came together to declare what was biblical on this point of the Trinity. Now, the form of the creed we use, as I mentioned, was modified in 381, and it was actually not until about 451 at another council where the Nicene Creed was recognized by both the Western and Eastern churches as a faithful summary of the Christian faith. So now at that point, it was kind of neat. It really was an ecumenical creed. So no matter where you were in the church, you could be in a North African church or a European church or an Eastern church, all who did things a little differently than everybody else, but they would all say this creed. And it was a dividing line it put in place by faithful not perfect, uh, men whose conduct and faithful teaching followed. And it's been used in lots of ways by the church historically. So we use it in liturgy. Um, it's commonly used in the liturgy. In the Western church, it was often used in baptism. And that kind of makes sense, right? When you come to baptism, right, you're declaring what you believe. You're entering into the Christian church. What's one of the best ways to stand forth and to declare what you believe? Say the creed. So it was often used as the way, that's what you did in your baptism. You came up and you'd declare the creed and you would be baptized and you would enter into the church. And so you confess the same faith as every Christian the world over. Now we need to take a moment to talk about what authority a creed has. So giving you a little background where it came from, where it came from why we need it, but what kind of authority does it have? And for Protestants, this is a critical question as we differentiate between the authority of the church and the authority of the scriptures in a very particular way. And so we want to be careful here. For Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholics, the creed is functionally no different than scripture. 
as the authority of the church supersedes everything else in determining what is and is not doctrinal tradition. So in those communions, there really is no practical difference between the two. Sacred tradition, which includes the creed, um, and sacred scriptures are both under the authority of the church, and they're going to kind of sit on an equal level. For Protestants, we hold the church to be a just and true authority. It's given by God with duties and tasks that only it has the authority to perform um, or conduct. But it's an authority that's got to be subordinate to the scriptures as the rule of law. When a pastor preaches to you to the degree to which they bring the word to bear, they are the voice of God to you. You are to hear it like that. But they hold no special infallible ability. Thank goodness. They can, they can be wrong and they can be corrected. That is why Protestants have traditionally been very strong in advocating literacy and learning wherever we go with missionaries, because we want con congregations that can read their scriptures and keep their eyes on the text. Um, we don't want you subject um, to things outside of yourself where you can't look at the original word of God. So as with preaching, a creed is essentially a fallible summary of infallible truth. Kind of sounds like an oxymoron, but think through that statement, right? It's a fallible summary of infallible truth. It's, it is not scripture but it can be a faithful summary of the scriptures. And in so much as it faithfully summarizes the faith, it is authoritative and should be treated as such. With something like the Nicene Creed, you have the advantage of a fallible statement of faith that has been tested and tried for 1,700 years and found to be faithful and true. Right? Think of it this way. Right? If, if, you're, if you're out in the woods and you're, you're on a trail and you have a guide, right? if that guide has never been there before, maybe they have a good set of skills, right? but they've never walked that path before, all right, you might trust them, but there's a little trepidation. If that, if that guide's walked that same path hundreds of times, and that path's been walked by hundreds of other guides before them hundreds of times, does that give you more confidence or less confidence in what's being done? Right, it should give you more, and you'd be foolish to throw off that level of instruction, especially just for something you came up with yourself at the last minute. The Nicene Creed is basically an ancient sermon handed down to you by millions of Christians who came before you and taught it over centuries. It is not a competitor to scripture. It is a guidepost to point you to it. It is a catechism, a teaching tool, and one that has a great deal of historical pedigree and does not come from just one Christian, no matter how godly, but it is tested and tried and has been through many teachers. So hopefully that kind of gives you an idea where it comes from and how we think about it, why it's there uh, in our liturgy. So now I want to do the fun part. We're going to walk through it really quickly. So I'm going to give you the 15-minute the ultra Nicene Creed run through. And you will see in my notes, I've put a bunch of scriptures in there. I'm not going to read them all, all right? Um, you're going to want lunch. So as we go through this, I'm going to highlight and walk you through the gospel as taught to you by the creed, because I want you to use this as a tool um, to, to know the gospel yourself, to center yourself in it, and to see how valuable this protection really is for you. So Let's start with part one. I'm going to break this up into four passages. We'll take it in four bite-sized chunks as we walk through it. And please, go through it. Look up, look up all these scriptures. Convince yourself that this thing is dead on. And if you're not, come talk to us. Part one. Let's take the first phrase. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. We start with that phrase, right? I believe. And I want you to start there because that word should be thought of more like I trust or I have faith in. Right? This is not just intellectual assent. Right? A confession of faith is a form of worship. Right? Knowing God leads to loving God. When we recite the creed, you are not bullet point outing the Christian faith. Right? It's, it's not an intellectual set of, um, set of things that you're trying to tick off on a list. You are declaring where your hope, faith, love, and trust is located. 
And even in this opening statement, every single word in here counts. What are we being taught here? Number one, we're monotheists, up and against the multi-pseudo-god religions of pagans or, frankly, of our current secular humanism. We believe in one almighty God over which there is no authority or power. Deuteronomy 4.39, therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. We come to God as our father. Note that title. The creed uses that title. Not as some angry deity who are you going to appease and we have no connection to. Romans 8, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This is critical. If we cannot call God our father, we cannot call Christ our savior. That title is right there for you to come to God as your father. God in his full sovereignty is Lord over all, heaven and earth, visible and invisible. We are Christians and believe in creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Lest there is any philosophy or current paradigm that suggests Invisible realities or claim of some pre-existing matter or energy that was there before God was there? Nope. We cut it right off from the beginning. Everything outside of God is created, Genesis 1.1. And, and note, the Christian church today, we can't even get past this phrase. All right, we've already, we've already screwed this one up. All right, we, we can't even get past, well, Father's kind of patriarchal and, and heaven and earth and all of it. Well... Energy, Big Bang, I mean, we have trouble right here from the bat, and the creed is protecting you from those things right off the bat. Every phrase here is pointing you to scripture, to the most fundamental truths about who God is and the core of his character. Then we move to Christ. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So I want you to notice the Trinitarian structure as we walk through the creed. We started with who God the Father is. We're moving to who our Lord is, right? And that this phrase sometimes seems to us, if you've ever read this, it seems like they're kind of belaboring the point, right? You read this and you're like, well, I know you're trying to tell me Jesus is God, but God of God, light of light, very God of very... You keep saying these things, right? And that's true. It's pounding that truth into your head. But remember what we just talked about, the history of this creed. What were they fighting against, Right? pounding the other direction, saying he's not. He's not quite there. He's, he's reflected light. He's sort of God of very God. He's very, they're pounding it in because that's, that's where the enemy was. So as we walk through this piece, it starts right off, just like the last one. We have one Savior, one Lord, one Messiah. Jesus is unique. There is no other. He's the same one God as the Father, and they are tied together. John 14 Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. God and the Father are tied together. There is one God. Christ is begotten of the Father, right? You see that word multiple times in this section of the creed. And here the creed is helping protect us against what we might inter- how we might misinterpret that word in a human frame, right? Abraham begot Isaac. 
And there was obviously a beginning to Isaac's life, right? There was a time when he was not and a time when he was. And because we're all humans, we function in time and space, this is a characteristic we have and we pass this on to our children. But for the creed, as was emphasized by Athanasius, who was one of the great church fathers who was part of this fight, in particular, Christ as the Son of God is eternal in his nature. His begetting is an eternal one that does not describe a time period but a relationship. This is emphasized by the phrase, what does the creed say, before all worlds. Christ was begotten eternally. There's no beginning to it. This is, an, uh, this is the emphasis on only begotten and how the creed labors to say this, not made. It was reminding you of this. It's, it's, it's knocking that into your head that this is the Savior that you worship, eternal Son of God. Because the scripture speaks of Christ as God and the Father as God, this is the only way to be faithful to that truth and recognize that eternal connection between Father and Son in human terms like begetting. He who sees the Son and sees, sees the Father. He is God of God and light of light. Read John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You notice how that sounds a lot like the creed? Right? One thing if you ever want to do, this is kind of fun, read this part of the creed, go read the first ten verses of John, and then read this part of the creed again. Just go back and forth rapidly like that. And the phraseology, God of light, very God, it sounds awfully familiar. It's amazing how consistent the two of them are. God is the creator, and he created through the Son, right? We just read that in John, and they're protecting that in this part of the creed, right? Was made, right? And by whom all things were made. That's where that phrase is coming from. They're pulling that from the scriptures, right? Notice how all this supports and proves from the Bible the divinity of Christ. They are upholding the Savior for who he is. Because if we get wrong who he is, the next part of the creed where we talk about what he did for us is gone. It's lost. So they're, they're building this foundation for you. And then the last part, the Son and the Father are of the same essence. What we mean when the creed says of one substance. And I bet some of you have read that word and you've wondered what exactly does that mean, of one substance, Right? It's a great phrase, and it's been one of the most crucial word choices in all of history. <laughs> um, whatever the essence or crux of deity is, and please don't ask me what that is. I'm, I'm, that's, that's way above my pay grade. But both father and son have it in the same way. One is not less God than the other. This must be true as Christ our Redeemer cannot simply be a creature to do what he did for us. If we lose this, we lose all of it. The Nicene fathers purposely used a word that meant the same as as opposed to another word that was being considered that would have meant similar to. The latter would have left the door open for all kinds of ways to describe Jesus as kind of God, Godish, pseudo-God, who knows. But they purposely chose that word to shut the door on that. Um, a word that no Aryan could agree with. And that today, we have groups, you know, LDS, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. They can't agree with this. This is, this is where they have to stop. They cannot go here with us. In essence, this creed teaches you the critical relationship between father and son that is given in the Gospel of John. It's encapsulated in one short bit of text. God incarnate, no messing around with that, came to save us. The scripture tells us Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, and the creed is grounding you in that so that you never lose sight of how amazing your Savior really is and the foundation of where your salvation actually comes from. So the third part... This is my favorite because it's a perfect example of how tangible our faith is and how objective historic reality is a part of the Christian faith, right? Our faith is not a mental exercise. 
It's a declaration of reality that can be seen and touched and that really happened in real time. And this is, this is something we're attacked on very commonly, right? Jesus is a great idea. Um, doesn't matter if he actually existed, right? The creed here is protecting us against this. And after declaring the nature of Christ and the Father, we come to the third part. Christ, right, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. So notice these things as we walk through this. The creed does not allow us to separate who Christ is from what he came to do. He is God and he came to save us. Those two facts are right there in the creed on purpose. If Christ is God, then and only then can he be our perfect sacrifice. He did this, his life, death, and resurrection because he loves us. He did this for us, crucified for us. Christ, while fully God, was also fully man, as is testified here by reference to the virgin birth, right? Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21. As Athanasius said, if Jesus, Christ is the, if Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, is not true God from true God, then we are not saved, for it is only God who can save. But if Jesus Christ is not truly man, then salvation does not touch our human existence and condition. You remember that passage from Philippians, right? Came in the form of man. Scriptures emphasize that, and so the creed emphasizes that. Notice the historicity of the events here, right? His birth, his crucifixion, even mentioning Pilate by name, which I always find, I always find that fascinating, that you have a, one of the worst men in, in history, <laughs> a, total, a total reprobate on every possible level, is forever immortalized by hundreds of millions of Christians for centuries who declare his name as the one who's most responsible for the worst crime in all time. So I doubt he thought that's where it was going when he was in the middle of this. All right, Christ's passion, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, our salvation happened in real time, in a real place with real people. It was an objective event. Why is the creed bothering with all these mundane details? Because the scriptures bothered with all these mundane details. Every one of these phrases is simply pulled from the gospel accounts to give a short summary of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. There is nothing here that is not in scripture, and if this falls, it all falls. 1 Corinthians 15, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, who, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. That last phrase from Paul, you could do it similar to how people treat Jesus today. If Jesus is just a metaphor in this life, then we are, are, of all men, most pitiable. If Christ did not rise, we are still in our sins. If he did not ascend, he is not Lord. And if we don't have the spirit in the building of the church, he is not interceding for us while the Father places all enemies under his feet. It's real. He died and rose again for our salvation, right? Notice that the creed actually labors to say that. It was for us that he did this. He suffered death on our behalf that we might live. And it's a reflection of Paul's very similar statements in 1 Corinthians 15:3, For I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Sounds a lot like the creed, right? They're, they're taking this from Paul. Paul was giving the Corinthians a creedal statement there, right? He was giving them a creed to say and to remember and to ground them. And Nicene stole it from him, straight up. 
It's a simple and beautiful and no doubt of the reality of this. This is the atonement for us men and for our salvation. He did this. It is an act of grace. We are not involved here other than being the recipients of what Christ is doing. Notice that the basis of these truths as well, I just said that phrase, right? According to the scriptures. And that phrase was taken directly from Paul, right? The reliability of this is placed firmly on the Bible. These events are according to the scriptures. The creed is not claiming some special authority for you, right? It is pointing to an authority. It is saying, if you read this section, right? Jesus died, Jesus died for you according to the scriptures, right? That's what you're being taught here. This section is saying in so many words, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible, to, right? Which, by the way, that's a creed, so you can't avoid this. You're going you're to walk out of here with one whether you like it or not. Um, but that's what it's teaching you. History ends in judgment. With Christ's work comes an end, and that end will include judgment by God through Christ in whom all men will be subject, and his kingdom is eternal, unlike any king. He will come again. Note the creed does not spend a ton of time on millennium specifics or arguments over details of the end times. Thank the Lord. Um, but it reminds us of all one thing that all Orthodox believers hold to, regardless of their eschatology. Jesus is coming again, and he will be the judge of the world, and his kingdom never stops. This is terrifying, and it is a great comfort. Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Uh, should serve his, um, him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, uh, the one which shall not be destroyed. That's what they're telling you right there. They took it straight, straight up. So the last part of the creed, we've done Father, Son, and now we move to Holy Ghost. This completes the triune nature of it and is just as essential as what came before. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. This is a great phrase, the Lord and giver of life. It's a wonderful title for the Holy Spirit. It, like the creation language earlier in the creed, reminds us, that all parts of the Godhead are eternal and were part of creation. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water in creation, right? Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And the Spirit of God is the one who unites us to Christ. Your new birth is from the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. That's what you're taught here in that simple title. The Spirit is the agent of the redemptive work that Christ accomplished according to the will of the Father. He's a person, right? Not an impersonal force. People love to think of God as an impersonal force, and that doesn't matter if you're in the ancient world or a Star Wars movie. But the Spirit is a distinct person. We are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is referred to as a He. He is our helper. He can be grieved. He loves us. He dwells in our heart, and He prays for us. Just like the relationship of Christ and Father, we must defend and protect the relationship of spirit with father and son. The fact that the spirit proceeds from the father is essentially straight from John 15, 26 through 27. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify of me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. That phrase proceeding from the father is straight out of scripture. Right? As, with, as with some of you who may know church history, that next little phrase and the son has caused some problems. Um, it's used in the Western church, but it's not used in the Eastern. 
The original form of the creed did not use it. It just stopped at proceed from the Father. We use it from the Western church tradition as an expression of an important element of Acts 2.33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And the work of the Spirit comes through both the Father and the Son, which is an important element of Trinitarian unity. But the point to remember here is that both versions are correct. One of them is simply emphasizing where the Spirit comes from, and the other is emphasizing how the Spirit works through both Father and Son. So we're protecting that. And you can look to that, that Acts text in the John 15 as a way to remind yourself of that. The Holy Ghost is tied directly to both Father and Son as being worshipped and glorified, right? They make a point to labor that. This is a wonderful way to remind us that the Spirit is fully God as much as the Father and is thus worthy of worship in the same way, right? To blaspheme the Spirit is to be outside salvation, right? That's an interesting point, right? The Scripture says you can blaspheme God the Father and be forgiven. You can blaspheme the Son and be forgiven. But a point is made by Christ that a certain type of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is not, we are baptized in his name. Lying to the Spirit is lying to God. In Acts, in Acts 5, um, when Peter confronts Ananias, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Right, right there, Peter said, you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. The Spirit is the source of the scriptures. The Spirit of God was the one through whom the prophets gave us the revelation of God. He is the agent of revelation, right? Second Peter, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Biblical prophets did not take drugs, cut themselves, work into a frenzy, or some other form of pagan rite to excite a vision. They simply received what God gave them, right? That is the inspiration of the scriptures. And notice how, once again, the creed is pointing you to the Bible, not to itself. The last phrase is one that we as American evangelicals need to drive into our skulls. The church is not an afterthought. Um, it is a creation of the spirit, both at Pentecost and in our daily life. It is the bride of Christ. It is the next logical step for the creed to discuss after the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the Father. We've talked about the Son and what he did. We've talked about the Spirit and what the Spirit did. The Spirit gives us the life we have here. We are not a club. We are a covenant-bound people indwelt by the Spirit. And we are holy, meaning set apart. We are Catholic, which is a wonderful word. You need to love that word. We are Catholic, meaning universal, all tribes, tongues, nations. We are not tribal in our faith. That's from Zephaniah. We are apostolic, meaning grounded in the scriptures and the faith given to us by the apostles. We follow in their train and what they handed to us. The church is where all the truths that are expressed by the creed are applied and taught for God's people to have life. It is a creation of God like the family, not an institution of man. And finally, we have one baptism in the triune name. This speaks to our unity as believers. This speaks to our Catholicity, right? The fact that there is no other way in the Father, there's no other way to the Father except through the Son, and our faith is unique and not one option of many. Therefore, we have one baptism into one Lord, into one faith. And our hope is in that final resurrection, Acts 23. Six, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged, right? We look to this, right? The creed reminds us of this act, just like Paul stated. We are to look to this and trust that the life we have now will be made manifest. This is an expression of faith. What we don't, 
yet see but what our hope is fixed on. We look ahead and we know what is going to come. To live is Christ and to die is gain, right? The creed ends like that, right? Jesus wins. We know it. The creed declares it. This is what's going to happen. There's no, no subtlety here, no messing around. So that was fast. But we went through it, and hopefully you can look up some of those other scriptures. But I want you to see one of the points there is that every word they chose to use in that creed meant something. They didn't waste a single one, right? Everything, from just the subtleness of calling God the Father, of reminding us that Jesus was not made, right? Of emphasizing that he was part of creation, his work, his life, death, resurrection, the historicity of it. It protects you from a ton of errors. And so I want to finish here with four things I want you to take away and remember. Four ways to think of the creed. Creed is worship, creed is unity, as a preacher, and as a shield and sword. I mentioned that historically the creed was used during baptism. So if we think of creed as worship, and that means for a person to confess the faith as they entered the church. When we say it every week as part of our covenant renewal service, we are in one sense reminding ourselves of what it is we believe, right? We recite who the Father is and what he did, who the Son is and what he did, and who the Spirit is and what he did, right? And where all this is going in the end, where our hope is set. This is the confession of a good conscience towards God, as Peter stated, which was placed upon us at our baptism. Your baptism is a covenant connection to God and his people. Remind yourself of it every week. Right? This is the faith. You confess your sins, and then you confess your faith before you are fed by the word and the table. Right? Every week, we preach the gospel in our liturgy. Right? It's, it's mixed throughout all parts of it, but it's right here. Right? Every week, we stand up, and all of us in unison declare the gospel. The creed is a form of unity. Doctrine rightly used unites us. Right? One of the wonderful uses of the creed is the ability to synthesize a scriptural-based, you can think of it kind of as a plumb line, to help us see faithfulness in other Christians who might differ with us on many things. The creed does not cover everything. Right? It can't. Right? We have other documents that, that point to our distinctives, like the Westminster Confession of Faith. But it is truly is amazing how much ground it covers. As I went through that quickly, you could see every single phrase, every paraphrase, every comma and quick word afterward gave you something, right? something to hold on to and to protect you. Its core orthodoxy very much helps you decipher fundamental problems. Right? A faithful Lutheran or Presbyterian or Anglican or Baptist can adhere to this creed. Right? We can all share this. There's fellowship there we can have, and the creed helps us see that and not deny it. But groups that can't adhere to this, like I mentioned before, um, Jehovah's Witness, LDS, um, and frankly, virtually every form of liberal Christianity that's there that would deny the historical truths of the gospel, right? This is a dividing line. It separates us. It gives you, you know, it's a giant red flag for you, and it's a protection. Fellowship there from a church standpoint with groups like that is not going to happen. We do not have a shared foundation to work from, and until we have that, we can't have that fellowship. Now, creed is a preacher, right? The creed, as I mentioned, keeps you in the word. I hope if I demonstrate anything to you this morning is that the creed intends to not, does not intend to be a competitor to the scriptures. In everything it is doing, it is meant to be a guide and a resource. Like a preacher, it's doing everything it can to ground itself in the scriptures and point you to those scriptures and give you a firm and easy way to recall and understand critical doctrines that you have to hold to. That if not, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, it's going to take away things you do not want to be taken away. If you read the creed and it doesn't drive you to understand your Bible better, then you're missing it, right? That creed is, is there to drive you to your scriptures. And finally, a shield and sword. The creed can protect us, and it is a gift from the church. Back in Ephesians 4 and Hebrews 13, right, where we started, 
Above all, the creed is a gift of wisdom from faithful and fallible men of the past, but they were pastors. They wanted to protect and defend, and this was a tool they developed to do that very thing. They loved their sheep, right? And they did not want salvation taken away from their sheep. They did not want them lied to. So, some of you may know there's one of the, one of the bishops who attended that first council, uh, that one at Nicaea, was a fellow from, um, I think he's, he's from Asia Minor, um, Nicholas, right? He was a bishop, he attended. He's the one from whom we get a lot of the legends that have come up, St. Nicholas, right? A lot of that is traced back to him at that time period because of, of things that he did. Um, and one of the interesting things is, is he, loved, he loved Jesus. He loved um, the fact that Jesus was fully God. He loved that truth and that it spoke to them. And at some point during the council, um, he was listening to one of the Arians speak. It may have been Arius himself uh, listening to it. And it upset him so bad, he smacked the guy <laughs> during the council. Not, not, not necessarily the appropriate way to go. We usually don't like that at presbyteries. Um, but, you know, there you go. But he hit him. Um, <laughs> and he was so upset. Um, now, he had, he, he, the other bishops made him apologize for doing that. He, uh, that wasn't the, the, the way to go. But you can understand his zeal. And I appreciate it, right? Um, so one thing to keep in mind is that that creed was so important to him, right? That, that it, it, it led to that in that sense. But... It's always interesting to note that you're saying a creed that was so critical, so, so vital, right, that Santa Claus punched a guy, right? And so there you go. That's how important this truth was. That's how important the gospel was. That's what this was teaching, right? And I can let all the parents of young children, you can, you can deal with the repercussions of that statement. So I have full confidence in you. The creed, if you can use it, it can shield you from all kinds of errors, from being carried away by strange doctrines because it is a faithful exposition of the word of God, of the sword of the spirit. Use it. Walk through it and read the scriptures it points to and teach yourself the gospel better. And don't let anyone move you away from these things. We have many wonderful guides and faithful saints living today who can and do help us. We need them to shepherd and teach us. But don't neglect older guides, right? The ones that have been refined and tested, they are your teachers, too, and they have a good testimony. That's why we make it our testimony. So let's close. Let's pray. God and Father, we thank you for the gospel, for the scriptures to pass it down to us, for the work of Christ that it testifies to, and for the work of the Spirit to apply it and enlighten our minds. And we thank you for your saints throughout history and their faithfulness to point us to this great work. Bind us tightly to your word and what you teach us about these things, granting us wisdom to discern foolishness and act with sanctified hearts that trust in the righteousness we receive from your Son, by your Spirit, according to your scriptures. And amen. amen. Um, please stand and let's turn to...